It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Welcome, Money Guy listeners. I'm your host, Brian Preston, sitting here with my co-host, Mr. Bo Hansen. And um, we're kind of excited. We're doing this show a little early because we're going out of town. And it's a, it's a good trip. And that's what we're going to kind of close out the show with. A few weeks ago, was it a month ago, maybe a few months ago, I'd, I'd asked for some feedback from any of my premium listeners who wanted to get some feedback on how to do a good planning trip for Disney. Um, received a few people. It wasn't enough to felt like that I needed to go put a, a section on a premium section just focusing on Disney. But um, we're excited, so I'm going to go ahead and share the love anyway and do some carry some water for Disney. But that's not the focus of the show today. I got one big thing I want to talk about. First, we got to tell you I'm proud of Bo. He did something big. We, um, you know, here at Preston and Cleveland, by the way, this is my day job is not actually broadcasting. We are a fee-only wealth management firm down on the south side of Atlanta. Um, you can go check out our show notes at money-guy.com. You can also write the show. That's Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at money-guy.com. But we've, um, we've always tried to hold ourselves out as a firm that w- we really expect our employees, our associates, anybody who's going to be working directly with clients and making investment financial planning decisions, I want them to have multiple credentials. Now, Bo is already at the CFP level, the Certified Financial Planner, but uh, you know, I have two designations. I like to pick on him a lot that I have the hardest one, which is the the CPA, the Certified Public Accountant. I, I, you know, secretly I'll admit that that's probably a little bit of um. There's ribbing. some debate out there. We'll yeah. put it that way. It is. Bo's going for the probably what I call the second hardest. It might actually even be the hardest, but it's um it's one that within the industry, I don't know how else to say it, but you're a stud if you have this designation. If you go look at most of your mutual fund managers, most of your hedge fund managers, a lot of investment bankers. They are this credential that Bo's going after. And it's a very rare thing within financial planners to see somebody have this. And it's actually the CFA. Um, and Bo took his first, it's a three-part exam that you have to do to, to get this credential. And he's a third of the way through now because he passed the first part of the CFA exam. And Bo will explain to you what CFA is in a minute. But I was really impressed that the pass rate on this exam is 36%. So, Kudos to you, Bo. That's awesome. I well, mean, I, I appreciate that, Brian. So, so not only um, can you lift a house, because <laughs> you, you, know, you like to work out and kind of meaty, but he also has some brains to, to back up some of the knowledge. So I'm proud of you for doing that. But I wanted to, you know, something I get an email about a lot of times is that I've always been very proud about our credentials here because, we, you know, my partner, Bill, in our August office, he's also a CPA and a, a certified financial planner as well. So he's a multi-designation guy, and and I've always liked that. I felt like that made us different within the industry. This is not something that that you see everywhere else. Well, there was an article that came out in the Wall Street Journal that that's what we're going to focus on. It's called, Is Your Advisor Pumping Up His Credentials? And and I got credentials. Let me give you just a little background. You you have to understand, I feel like as as a person listening to the show, you need to understand this profession Financial planning, investment management is typically a profession that is owned by older people. I think the typical lifespan of what happens with a financial advisor is you have somebody who either works at a bank or in you know in some field somewhere, and they they feel like they have an aptitude for money, 
and they have enough friends and family that after a while they, they feel like they ought to go ahead and make the jump. And it's usually like a second career to them. It's somebody either coming out of the military. It's somebody, like I said, who worked at a bank and they get into this usually in their thirties and forties. So they got a little gray hair, um, you know, to, to make them seem like they're older and a little bit wiser. And that's slowly changing. This, this profession as financial advisors and investment managers is actually kind of going the way of what you see at CPA firms and other things like that, where now students can go and, and get degrees actually in financial planning, which I think is a positive thing. But I was one of the few people, and like I said, even though the trend's changing, when I came out of school, I kind of knew that this is what I wanted to do. I worked in public accounting, but I was in public accounting doing tax planning and tax work, but also doing the financial planning. And and I always felt like I was way too young to, to really impress my clients, you know, because you're, you're sitting across the table from 50 and 60 year olds that are very successful, small business owners. And then here you are, you know, barely shaving, uh, you know, maybe every other day, um, you know, and you're supposed to be giving these millionaires advice on how to do things. So there's a little insecurity on my part. So one of the ways I overcome that, that I used to overcome that insecurity in my youth was I went and got all these designations and certifications. Um, it was also a way for me to, to kind of make those 50 and 60 year olds feel more comfortable with my experience, my education and knowledge. And, and I think that's kind of one of the things I've told Bo. He's getting into this industry to hopefully eventually, you know, be able to, to, to have people come to him and approach him. And, and the way you have to do that, I felt like, is really put yourself out there, that you are doing something that nobody else is. So it really was kind of an insult to me when I see that um, there's people out here essentially hijacking this great way that you can show that you're that you're a good advisor. So let me jump into this article. It came out back in October of 2010. It says, is your advisor pumping up his credentials? It's from the Wall Street Journal. And it says, um, and I'll just read the first part of the article. It says, just when Americans seem more desperate than ever for trustworthy investment advice, financial advisors are brandishing a baffling array of new credentials, some of which can be earned with minimal or no study after a few hundred dollars. Typical. You know, somebody has figured out how to cut the corner off things and, and really confuse the issue. It says, increasingly says regulators, financial advisors are using these dubious designations as marketing tools to win the trust of older, wealthier clients in hopes of selling high-fee investments that aren't appropriate for them. And I'm going to give you an example in a minute of, of exactly what that means. And, um, you know, and it starts off, and I liked how it hit all of ours. It said, in the financial realm... Many well-established credentials, including the certified public accountant, chartered financial analyst, and certified financial planner designations, require long study, demanding con- demand continuing education, and enforce strict codes of ethics. In order to become a CPA, for example, one must pass a 14-hour CPA exam. Many newer credentials, however, require comparatively little effort on the part of the students. In recent years, a number of the financial credentials have soared. Listen to this. According to the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, which oversees how investments are marketed to the public, there are at least 95 different professional designations for financial advisors, nearly double the 48 listed in 2005. So this is a trend that is really picking up speed. Is and, and what I liked, because it ties in exactly what I was talking about, the three top designations that they just listed are exactly what we're going for. The, the CPA, the CFA for you, and then the CFP, which we both have. Um, the Wall Street Journal also found in its research outside of FINRA, which is that organization that regulates, there was at least 115 other so credentials or designations that were out there as well. So 
this is really hijacking the system because if I'm a consumer, you're probably going, gosh, how do I know if my guy's a crook or if, you know, or, or if he's just going and paying a fee and getting some type of license or designation? I don't know if he's the real deal. And, and the secret is really education. You have to know exactly what the requirements are for each of these things and educate yourself. Bo, did you have any thoughts on, you know, as we're setting this thing up? Well, I was going to say, you know, the one the one tough part is, you know, being in the industry, we can recognize the credentials that that um, are pretty rigorous and pretty prestigious and those that aren't. But to uh, to someone who's not in the financial arena, it is difficult. And it, the article even states that many uh, credentials sound confusingly similar. Um, so I'm, I'm just going to read a few. There's a certified senior advisor, certified senior consultant, certified senior specialist, certified senior financial advisor, chartered senior financial planner, and chartered advisor for senior living. <laughs> if you don't know, if you don't know the financial arena that well, all those probably sound about the same. And they even a lot of those sound like certified financial planner, and a lot sound like a chartered financial analyst. So it is difficult to just off the off the cuff recognize the difference in these designations. Yeah, you know, the the ones I thought, like, they they had a broke. I liked how they gave a visual, and they had, in the highly rigorous column, they had chartered financial analysts, which I'll go ahead and give you credit. I don't think it's any um, coincidence that it's listed at the top of the list. <laughs> it says it requires roughly 900 hours of study in accounting, economics, ethics, finances, and mathematics. Students must pass three six-hour exams. And then the next one was the Certified public accountant, that's the CPA. Students must hold a bachelor's degree with a concentration in accounting and pass a 14-hour CPA exam. And then the, the last one was a certified financial planner. Students must take the equivalent of 15 credit hours of undergraduate-level courses, culminating in 10 hours of exams spread over two, day, ten day, ten, two days. I don't know why it went to 10 days. And then you had over on the other side. Now, listen to this. This is the part, that, the less rigorous. Rigorous. Certified Retirement Financial Advisor, CRFA. Hmm, that's very similar mm-hmm. to CFA. Student must pass 100-question exam. 100-question exam, for which 40 to 75 hours of preparation are usually sufficient. Yeah, in continuing education world, that probably means <laughs> just a few hours. Certified Senior Advisor, the, the CSA. Students must pass a 3-hour, 150-question exam. And then the last one they had on here is the Chartered Senior Financial Planner. Sounds a lot like the CFP, kind of. Yeah, you know, if, I, if I'm an older senior citizen person, I definitely want somebody who knows how to deal with senior citizens. So probably a Chartered Senior Financial Planner would be a good thing. It says students must take a three-day review course and pass an exam that is usually finished in two to three hours. So you can see there's a big difference between something that requires 900 hours of preparation. And let me just say, I'm going to go into this. That's a baseline. It really probably takes more than 900 hours, if you're going to be honest. But that they recommend no less than that for the CFA. Yeah, and let's not let's not forget the pass rate, 36 to 42 percent pass rate. These are people who are already in the industry trying to take this thing, and only 36 less than half are making it through. That and, says something about its rigor right there. That that 36 number is the number that Brian passed. I took the Dezem, the December exam cycle, and it was 36 percent that passed. For this designation, to get to the second test, you have to pass the first, and to get to the third, you have to pass the second. What's alarming is that the third level of this test, the CFA Level 3, still only has about a 49% pass rate. So even the people that could get past Level 1 and get past Level 2, only 49% could get past Level 3. Um, so you can, you can very easily tell that these 100-question multiple-choice exams aren't, aren't the same sort of rigor that that kind of test warrants. 
So, so why is this going on? You know, the, the question is, why would this? And I liked how the ar- article actually addressed that because it went on and said, this is what they found in their, their research. that Credentials can help advisors make more money. A 2007 study by FINRA's Educational Foundation determined that 46% of older investors were more likely to accept financial guidance from someone with a professional designation. And 17% of investors would be more receptive to advice from a certified advisor for senior investing, even though no such credential exists. So they made up something for this survey, and it shows you how strong having words like certified, advisor, senior, all put together in a, you know, as a designation you know, people are already scared about what decisions they're making. So if they can get any type of inclination that you know more than your, the, the, the peer right down the street, they, they want to hire you. And I thought they had some great case studies in here of actual examples. Listen to this, and it kind of breaks your heart when you hear this stuff. Consider allegations made against Carl Wiley. Is that, I mean, am I saying that right? That's kind I of a funny last name. Kind of appropriate. And listen to all these credentials. CWP, F-I-C-F. L-U-T-C. Those stand for Certified Wealth Transfer Practitioner. That sounds complicated. Fraternal Insurance Counselor. Fellow. Fellow. And Life Underwriter underwriter Training Counsel Fellow. So in 2002, Mr. Wiley, who was then based in Omaha, Nebraska, met with a local couple, Marilyn and Donald Hooper. Mrs. Hooper says, she says she recalls Mr. Wiley mentioning his credentials as a sign of his expertise and seeing them on his wall, on his business card, in his advertisement, and his literature, she adds. And this is what I think, this really gets down to the meat of it. This is what she said. Anytime you look at a financial advisor, just like with a doctor, the more accreditations they have, the more you think they're reputable. I think it's as simple as that. that, That's probably exactly what, what the underlying issue is. And that's why you have to educate yourself understand what's going on and we'll talk about after this what you also need to pay attention to and Bo you kind of pre-show you you hit this on the hit the nail on the head Mr. Wiley says I never use my credentials to market myself not really I had them on my you know business cards I'm adding the you know just for effect but I didn't really flaunt them <laughs> so it kind of cracked me up. in 2005 the hoopers brought a lawsuit in douglas county district court in nebraska against the parent company of a brokerage at which mr wiley had begun been a salesman in the suit the hoopers alleged that mr wiley persuaded them to liquidate the hundred and five thousand dollar balance in mr hooper's retirement fund and put the proceeds in an unregistered stock called capital equity fund Mr. Hooper incurred a surrender charge of more than $10,000 to liquidate an annuity in his retirement fund. So we're talking about $105,000 account, $10,000 surrender charge. It's 10% of the account's value Mm -hmm. in a surrender charge. Ruling against the defendants, the court found that Mr. Wiley had given the couple a brochure that said capital equity had no stock market risk and was a great investment vehicle for seniors. The Hoopers lost approximately 55% on capital equity fund in 18 months. Ooh. Mr. Wiley says it was another broker in his office who sold the stock to the Hoopers. I never read anything like that brochure, he says. They said, I was present in the room at the time of the sale, but I wasn't. I didn't tell them anything, and I didn't sell that product. And let me tell you, you think that this is just a case study? Guys, I met with a client this week, and he's a nice guy. 
Um, but I don't think he appreciates us really to the point that he, he shopped us a little bit and he's got, he's gotten a hold of, he, he's not leaving us. I mean, he, I think he recognizes after we gave him a little education, the difference, but he did come across, his brother had recommended that he talk to this group and they're a bunch of insurance salesmen and nothing wrong. Believe me, my best, one of our best friends here in this office building is an insurance broker. Y'all have heard me talk about Mike Gasses. Great guy. If you want to buy some life insurance, some um, you know long-term care or disability, Mike does an incredible job. But there are some people that are not doing the best thing. And, and believe me, this client who came to me, and it, and it kind of put me off a little bit because I, I, I think y'all can tell I have a passion for education. That, that's my thing is I, I, I enjoy seeing a client have an understanding for what we're doing from here. And this advisor who was referred by the brother had told this 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 individual that um, <laughs> that what they ought to do is they have way too much money in retirement funds. Too, they, they're saving too much in retirement. And even to the point that they might want to take some money out of some of those retirement funds, cash it in, incur, he's not 59 and a half, so there'd be a 10% penalty, plus pay the income taxes to take the proceeds to buy some life insurance products. And I was, you know, and I've even heard, I had my partner, I was at a conference last week from Monday and Tuesday, and um, my partner Bill, you know, over in Augusta said that he had a client call him up that, you know, I need to be careful about giving a company's name, but it's a a household name um, that you see advertised on a nightly basis talking about home equity loans. This client called the the 1-800 number from this home equity loan and they, you know, and, and when the, the client was talking to the, the person at the other end of the 1-800 number, they found out how much equity, because the house was almost paid for. Because we'd recommend, I, you guys have heard me say, when a client's close to retirement, you should be debt-free. This person on the 1-800 number told them, you know what you need to do? Let us give you this home equity line. Instead of you getting a $50,000 home equity, let's go ahead and do two, 300000 and take the proceeds that you get out of this, this home equity line. Give it to your advisor and put it in the stock market. This is the guy on the other end. So this type of stuff, do not think this is a Wall Street Journal article. This can't happen to you. I have dealt just in the last two weeks with one of my own clients being tried to, somebody tried to sell him. And I think sometimes that's what hurts us is that we're not salesmen. So some of our clients who aren't as financially educated or don't have a desire to be financially educated, they have a family member or a friend who appears to be doing very well because maybe their income allows them to outrun their poor financial decisions, but outward, outwardly they look like they're very successful. And, it, you know, that, they, they, that their advisor gets more credit than they're due and they give this horrendous advice. That, you know, and, and I'm sure the commissions were going to be outrageous on this stuff, but just please take that. And that's what, Bo, you made a great point in our, in our pre-planning, you know, before we started doing this show. And you said, in addition to just knowing the, the credentials, you need to understand. What would you tell me? I, I said, basically, what you need to do is you need to understand how your advisor gets paid. If, if there's a, if you're working with someone who can potentially make six, seven, eight thousand dollars $8,000 off of one transaction, you know, there might be cause for concern. Now, it's one thing if you're paying that as an ongoing fee for continual services, but if you're paying that for a one-time transaction, that's something to be leery of. So my advice would be, and if your advisor has one of the credentials we've mentioned, it doesn't automatically mean he's a bad guy or he doesn't do it. But why don't you ask him, why did you pursue this designation? If you have this, this credential, what made you want to pursue it? 
and then know how they get paid. Those are the two things that I think are going to equip you the most. And do some research on your own. You know, we live in a Google age. It's not that hard to find information on anything that you want to know. Um, look up your advisor's credentials to make sure they are something that, that are, um, you know, rigorous and that you feel comfortable with your advisor touting, touting that uh, pedigree. Yeah, and that's we call that here at Preston, including the Google, Google difference. You know, kind of coined that phrase because when we're talking to prospects, we always, you know, we hear that they've got somebody. We don't talk bad about our competition, but we say, go Google them. Then Google us. See who's trying to change the industry. Who's actually doing something to try to help the people. And, and also, can you can tell has the heart of an educator. You know, you hear Dave Ramsey talk about and I, I love that because I really think if you're going to be effective in this industry, you do have to have that heart of an educator to want your clients to completely understand and say that just trust me mentality. Um, I think, Bo, did you have anything else you want to say on this? Because I wanted to kind of move on. Before we got to Disney, I had a, a, an email I'd got. It was actually a comment written on our last post we did called uh, I May Not Always Be Right. Did you have anything else you wanted to add? No, I think, um, I think that's good. Well, Peter had written us, and I thought this was a great comment that Peter had posted on the last podcast we did. And, you know, remember if you, that whole podcast we did last show was on how a lot of, a lot of us have short memories when we have these people who are kind of soothsayers or people who come out and they predict massive things that are going to happen with the markets or the economy, and they happen to be right, and then we just forget how wrong they were before, and we just assume that whatever they say in the future is also going to be just as powerful as that one prediction they got right. So Peter came in, and he actually... You know, I, I want to give him full credit because we talk about this all the time. And, I, and it's one of those things after we do a podcast, there usually is one or two things we always go, gosh, I wish I'd have mentioned that. And Peter, did, you know, I don't have to take anything away because Peter actually did a very good job um, saying this. So let's just read his email. He says, his, actually his comment, he says, if you make enough predictions, some of them are bound to be correct just by sheer chance. That doesn't make you a good predictor of events, as you say. Everyone forgets the other 99% of the predictions you made that were wrong. Show me someone who can repeatedly make predictions significantly better than chance, and then I'll be impressed. And this is the part, this is the meat. It says, the other statistical phenomenon to be aware of, in addition to the mentioned base rate fallacy, is regression towards the mean. Bo and I have talked about this a ton because, you know, it's one of those things we, we hesitate to tell clients our discussion on this because it does give you a, a sense of optimism I think sometimes you have to be very careful, and I don't know, because it, it, even though this works statistically, it's not something I feel completely comfortable always discussing with a client, because you can't say, you know, this year, because of this element, or this economic data that was coming in, that this is going to happen, but I still think this is pretty powerful stuff. Let's, let's finish on with what Peter's train of thought was. Regression towards the mean. This says that once you have a single event well outside of the normal range, the next event is far more likely to be closer to the average range. This will keep happening until the event falls within the normal range. The event is regressing toward the mean, average value. I'm going to believe me, I'm going to dial this down so you know exactly what I'm talking about in a second. It doesn't imply that unusual events can't happen repeatedly. It just says that a series of events outside the normal range will be even more unlikely than a single unusual event. For example, in 2008, we saw a huge drop in the market. Then in 2009, it bounced way back, bringing the two-year return closer to the mean. To have a huge drop in 2008 and then again in 2009 would have been extremely unusual. Then in 2010, we saw more normal returns, bringing the three-year return even closer to the mean. Regression to the mean happens in all complex systems, financial markets, weather, 
traffic patterns, etc. They all follow the standard bell curve distribution, which dictates that most events will be average. Outlying events do occur, but they are inherently rare and therefore less likely to occur than the average events and even less likely to occur repeatedly. Back to the point of the podcast. If someone correctly predicts an unusual event, it would be foolish for them to predict a second unusual event occurring after it. It's far more likely that the next event will be even more average. And no one is impressed when someone predicts something typically happening, even if they predict it correctly. Here's, here's the point. Peter, great, great comment. Here's my point. You hear about people all the time talking about the lost decade. How in the last decade... We didn't have the S&P 500 didn't make any money, but if you go back and historically and look at the S&P 500 and you see that 10 to 12% rate of return. What does that mean based upon the email, I mean the comment that Peter just put? Regression towards the mean. And this is something that like I said I've hesitated to talk to clients about, but it's something I can't help but think about. Is if you have a period of time where the S&P 500 underperforms, hence the last decade. And then you and you know the average is somewhere between 10 to 12%. That means you have to have overperformance to kind of bring it back to the norm. And that, that's something that, like I said, it's not something that you really feel comfortable talking about, but it is something that is kind of intriguing to me because, you know, people always, I think it's a human nature thing. We always assume things are super negative. Um, we don't forget those things very quickly, but maybe we are going to have some periods of outsized performance, especially with inflation and everything else going on. There's... Some crazy things going on in the world, and believe me, I have some big thoughts on it with Egypt. And, um, you know, a lot of you ought to do some research on really the price of wheat and what that is doing and the success of Asia and why that is driving a lot of this. You don't hear about that stuff on the nightly news, but it really is something that I think is impacting this world significantly because you have to understand Asia is having tremendous success. And I'm not talking about just China. I'm talking about a lot of that tiger region you know, with India and elsewhere. And a lot of you might want to think about, we've always been talking about the rising middle class over in Asia. And as we have the rising middle class, they become bigger and bigger consumers. And, you know, a lot of that, when you can become a bigger consumer, you realize, hey, I'd like to have steak a little more often. I'd like to have hamburger a little more often. Protein items. It doesn't have to always just be, um, you know, hamburger, because that doesn't work in all the countries over there, but it could be chicken or any other protein. Well, a lot of those things require seven pounds of wheat to produce one pound of meat. And when you have goods like that go up, it has a direct impact in other parts of the world, like the Middle East, where I don't know if you're seeing this in the news media, but did you realize 50% of the per capita income in Egypt goes towards food because the per capita income is right around $2,000. So when you have that happen, where people are going hungry because the cost of food has doubled, that's where you get these riots from. So there's some really interesting things. Inflation, a lot of macro events occurring that's going to make this a very interesting period to be an investor and watching the the global stage. So pay attention to these things. It's hard to watch the nightly news and get that stuff. You know, and the reason is because it doesn't fit into a nice sound bite. That's why we have shows like this, because we can go deeper into issues and we're counting on you to understand things better than the average person I think they make the, the nightly news digestible for. Um, let's talk about something fun. Let's talk about Disney. I get excited about Disney. Bo has never been to Disney World. That's a shame. <laughs> it really is. Um, you know, my first trip to Disney, I was first a baby. I don't, you know, I don't remember that trip. 
I don't even know why my parent. Why you take a baby down there? You know, you brand new parents. You know, it's not like I had an older brother or anything. I just my parents decided to take me to Disney as a baby. You don't remember that trip, but they did it. I don't know if it was fun or not, but second time I went down there, I think I was probably 12, 13 years old, and it was incredible. And this is what really hit me when I, I used to, I have friends that used to go to Disney World twice a year with their kids. I used to make fun of them. But then I had daughters. I went my first trip with my children down to Disney World. And this is what I noticed. Really weird experience happened. When I was walking down some of the streets over there by, it's a small world, Peter Pan and so forth. I could almost have a flashback to when my own father was walking there. Well, you know, you know, and if you guys have been listening for a long time, I lost my father back in 2000, so it's been over 10 years now. But I could have a very vivid recollect, recollection of being on that exact same street with my father. Makes your, your hair stand up on your arm. Just an incredible experience. And then, you know, you look down at your young child and you, you kind of see the excitement in their eyes. Incredible stuff. I mean, it really is magical. I, I can think of no other way to put it. So I've kind of got the Disney bug. So... I find, Bo starts working here a few years ago. Find out this poor guy has never been to Disney. So I'm like, look, I go down there enough. I'm going to show you the ropes. So I wanted to give you guys the scoop on how you can be an expert for Disney and also maximize things. And modern technology has made this experience a lot easier. So I'm going to give you some, some tried and true things that have made me what I consider myself a Disney expert. And I think you guys, like I said, I'm carrying Disney's water a little bit. And it's not just because I've always had a great experience. I think y'all heard me in previous podcasts. I had um, one bad experience. But let me tell you, they fixed it, came above and beyond. That's what good organizations do. We all make mistakes. But a good organization, the way they differentiate themselves from an average organization is they make things right. Or they're always trying to make you feel better. And, and they did that. So I love trying to help out Disney any which way I can. Let me... um. The first place you probably want to do a little research if you if you want to become a Disney expert is there's a great book out there called The Unofficial Guide to Walt Disney World. And they, they publish it every year, and it's good. And you can buy it on Amazon. I'll get Bo to put a link for it. It's about 12 bucks, And it's really good you know, really good book. I will my only complaint about it, they don't make it available for the Kindle yet. I don't know what's going on with the unofficial guide that they can't get their act together to get us a Kindle version. Because that would be, you know, just awesome if I could go down there with my iPad, and, and you know, and and have that as a resource whenever I want to without having this big, thick book. Because it, it comes in looking thick. I mean, this is not something you could have probably work out with this thing, unless you're Bo, and it just wouldn't be enough weight for you. <laughs> but um, the apps that I use, because go check that out. And part of, I'll tell you, the other great thing about the unofficial guide is I think they are also somehow interconnected with. Um, the next thing I was going to mention, which is touringplans.com. If you go to touringplans.com, this website is awesome because what it allows you to do, if you pay their 1095 annual fee, you get access to um, a crowd calendar. So you can, even if your trip is, you know, four months out, you can go and see how crowded they're predicting at each of the parks based upon historical numbers for that time of year and, and everything else that's going on, special events for, Somebody like me, that's incredible. I'm a hyper planner, so that's that appeals to me. There's also these touring plans 
where you put in, and these things aren't, you know, because we're not all the same. I mean, it's just like this trip, we're going adults only. Most of the time, I'm going down there with the kids. So you have you have touring plans with small children. You have touring plans with teenagers. You have touring plans with adults only. They're all focused in on what you need, and they tell you exactly the order that you need to go hit the park rides to avoid bottlenecks and save time. And I think I couldn't find the actual stat because, of course, when you need something, you can't find it. But I think they have something on their website that says if you follow their touring plans, you will save on average three to four hours of waiting time. Time is money, people. And there's a cost to fun ratio. So if you can be more efficient, you can go see more things, have more fun. That's important. And then they have this great app that also you can do. It's free if you do the 1095 that you can download called wait times on your iPhone. So it's really powerful stuff. I use um, touring plans as an incredible thing. Apps wise, let me tell you, if you've got an iPhone, iPad, um, they, they might very well have some of this stuff out there for your Android users. Um, they have, um, there's, a, there's a company called Versa Edge that has Disney World Magic Guide. Now I, I was actually sitting here preparing this list and I read, wrote out two or three apps that I bought individually. And then when I was over there, went on the the app store, I found that they actually have, you go buy the $4.99 app, it has all of these $1.99 apps for all bundled into the $4.99. But the, the Disney World Magic Guide put out by Versa Edge is going to have the Walt Disney World Dining, meaning you can bring up any restaurant within the Disney Empire and see the prices, if it qualifies for the dining plan and so forth. They also have their own lines application so you can see what the wait times are. They also have maps that has, which what I like about their maps versus other applications you can get maps on, has the waiting times on the actual map. That's pretty powerful stuff. So go check that out. That costs, um, you know, $4.99 for that application. And then the last thing is I use a resource for planning the trip. Instead of just going to the Disney website and, and you know, and booking directly myself, I use a, a website called Mouseka Trips. It's M-O-U-S-E-K-E trips, T-R-I-P-S um, dot com. And I use a, a consultant named Scott Lillenquist. Scott's been incredible. I don't even think he knows I'm a broadcaster, but I give him a shout out because he's always done a good job. I know we did a Disney cruise last year that was incredible. And my wife's birthday was while I was on the cruise. I called Scott up and said, hey, I'd like to do something special for my wife. Can you hook me up? He contacted whoever he needed to within the Disney Empire and made it happen and um you know really made my wife feel good i made one phone call looked like a great guy scott did all the heavy lifting for me so these are the type of things i'm telling you if you can do the the unofficial guides 1199 the touring plans is 1095 that disney world magic guide is 499 for 2793 you can be an expert and i get nothing from any of those people this is all just independent stuff but um, I think you can tell there's there's some excitement. Plus, I'll tell you another great thing about that Touring Plans website. They have kind of a chat room. That sounds really 1990-ish. Um, but they do have a, a room you can go into and share your thoughts. And I go in there and just look at them from time to time because you get excited. You know, you're getting excited. Part of the trip, you're, the, special, the special part of being going on a Disney trip is the, the planning and the excitement of, of building up that trip up. So it's kind of nice to, to see other people who are just as excited about it as you are. Um, Bo, I haven't given you much chance to talk. What are your thoughts that being that maybe we'll do an update next podcast to let you know what Bo's thoughts were after going to Disney for the first time? I'll be honest. I'm super, super excited because I've never been to Disney. I think it's going to be a great, great time. Um, and also I'm kind of excited because I haven't had to do any planning for this one. And 
I'm not worried about missing anything since I am going with seasoned veterans in this. I know I'm going to get to see everything I need to see without having to worry that I'm messing something up and missing something big on my part. I'm worried we're going to drive him crazy, though, because we're not for the faint of heart. When my wife and I get down there, I mean, you have to pack light, be prepared, wear comfortable shoes, because we go. I mean, it is not something, if you're worried about how you smell, if you're worried about how your hair looks, you're not going to like it with us, because we go. I'm telling you, it's um, we ride all the roller coasters you know, you don't go back to the hotel in the middle of the day. You you leave. The hotel is essentially a place for you to change and shower and sleep. <laughs> and that's about it. Now, with the kids, we changed a little bit. Well, we've gone down there with adults before, and it's fun to go hit the restaurants, to go to do some of the, the, the more exciting rides that, that aren't great for small kids. So uh, I really am looking forward to it. I hope I haven't. I hope I. This is my only worry, Bo. Let me tell you my, my only worry. Uh-oh. Like when I go watch a movie, the my favorite movies of all time, and this is a little off, but y'all know this is the Brian Preston way, you know, as I go on these little tangents. Some of the best movies I've ever seen in my life. Let me give you a few of them. Matrix. Love the Matrix. Went to it. First time I saw it, I was on a guy's golf gambling trip, completely out of money. I'm not the type of person that's going to go to the ATM and get money if I'm at a casino. So I went to the movie theater with a few of the other guys on this trip that were broke. We'd never even heard of this movie. The Matrix turns out, I saw it for the first time in a casino movie theater. Incredible. So had low expectations. You're going to notice a trend here in a minute. So blew my mind. Another movie called Thank You for Smoking. Went and saw this. We were um, up in Atlanta, out with a couple on a double date. All the main movies, the blockbusters were, uh, you know, the big time movies that were out at that time that sold out because we were at a mall in the middle of downtown Atlanta. So this obscure movie called Thank You for Smoking was there. We went with this other couple. Turned out to be an incredibly funny, dark comedy. Low expectations. Count of Monte Cristo. Rented it on DVD. Never heard of this movie. Somebody had mentioned you might want to check it out. Had zero expectations. Turned out to be a pretty good flick. You notice this, the, the common trend there? Low expectations. It's always amazing how the human phenomenon lets you kind of if you don't know any better when something's really good you you know you really appreciate it i'm worried i've hyped this thing up so much you go get there and be like huh yeah that's, that's i don't right. think so i don't think that's gonna uh, happen uh, that was all right you know that's that's my only thing is i'm worried i've hyped this thing up way too much i mean i've even gotten to the point where on netflix streaming i've got Bo for homework watching some videos on how exciting it is at disney so hopefully i haven't ruined this thing for him but you guys, thank you for the feedback. I think I've probably um, pounded this into the ground, so we'll leave it along now. But go check out our, our website at money-guy.com. You can also check, write an email to the show, brian at money-guy.com. Please don't pick on us too much for doing the Disney at the end of the show. I do it at the end on purpose for my people who love the meat and potatoes and getting in, getting out on the financial data. I do this for some of you others that like the kind of the personal touch. You also, you know, I, I know I have listeners out there that have families and you're looking to always maximize. Remember, my goal lets you stretch every dollar a little bit more. If you take advantage of some of these things, that's exactly what you're going to do. So thanks for putting up with us, listening to us. We'll be back probably instead of two weeks, we'll be back in about two and a half weeks because we're going to release this show a little early. What, what you got? Didn't even mention, and we should have at the beginning of the show, the other exciting thing we have going on. Oh, we have a new employee coming. Is that what you're talking about? We have a new employee coming on to Preston Cleveland. Yeah, I did, you know. We have a new employee coming on. We'll be um, talking about her in coming weeks. We've got orientation process kicking in the next week. So, you know, 
keep it, keep the clients coming, guys. You know, a lot of you guys, I don't talk about it enough, but my biggest growth area, money guy listeners who become financial planning and investment clients. So if you're one of those people out there, don't think just because I'm in a different state than you that we couldn't work. And I, I probably don't brag about what we can do for our clients enough. I'm not the best marketer. But I tell you this, I have a passion for financial planning. I think you can tell I love educating people too. So if you listen to this, you've been listening to us for, you know, the last six months to a year, and you think your guy's not doing it for you, give us a call. We'll give it a look-see and tell you if, you know, this is what you need to be doing. And um, who knows, you might be a perfect fit for the, the Preston and Cleveland family here. So thanks for listening. We'll talk to you in about two and a half weeks. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston. And Brian Preston is a partner with Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. (laughs) 